The desire for God to appear becomes the overriding theme of our lives this time of year. Our challenge is to wait for it and embrace the stillness that true waiting requires. In the name of God, amen. Most of you will remember from last week Bishop Marks urging us to notice the beginnings of each of the gospel readings for these last three Sundays in Advent. He's such a great teacher, and I love listening to him and learning something every time, which is why, as I've been meditating on these texts, I can't help but be struck by how integrated they all are in the totality of our faith story, how they fit together and support each other. Again and again, as we mine the depths of our Christian faith, we are led backwards to the great prophets who foresaw the coming of a deliverer, a Messiah who would be the savior of the people of God. Every year at this season, we concentrate on the visions and the poetry that are found in particular in the book of the prophet Isaiah. On the first week of Advent, we heard a sort of infinite wish, an expression of deep desire for God to appear, to make himself known to the people, and to put aside what they had experienced as his anger at them for their sins, their refusal to follow in the paths they knew to be right. On the second week, God relents, telling the prophet, Comfort, O oh comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term and her penalty is paid. It's true that all people are like grass that withers and dies, but the promise is that after all its suffering in captivity, God will restore Israel to its place among the nations. The Messiah, the Savior, is coming soon. And now, today, all these hopes and promises are summed up in the really electrifying passage that Fred just read, one of the most famous in all of scripture. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor. That sounds good, doesn't it? We could use something like that right about now. And it may well be that hunkered down as we all are at the tail end of the year with grim news all around us, the year of the Lord's favor may actually be coming up. But I'm getting ahead of myself because first we need to go back a step, backwards in the story, before John the Baptist identifies himself as the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, back to a quieter moment, perhaps the quietest moment in all our long story, when an angel appears to a young girl, a very young girl, probably about 13, as yet unmarried and without sexual experience, and reveals to her that she has been chosen by God to carry in her womb this very same Savior 
for whom her people have been waiting all these years. And having quietly but courageously accepted this role, this unimaginable honor and burden, Mary sings the song we just recited together, echoing the other women of the Bible who came before her. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has regarded the lowliness of his handmaiden. It's this combination of exaltation and humility, like the humility of John the Baptist saying, I'm not worthy to reach down and untie the thong of his sandal. It's this wedding of opposites, high, very high, and low, inner and outer, that connects Mary both backwards across the centuries to the prophets and heroes, male and female, that are as that are as alive to her and to her fellow Jews as if they were standing right beside them, and forward to Jesus himself as he begins his public ministry in the synagogue at Nazareth, his hometown, by taking up the scroll and standing up and reading the same words from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. In other words, God has chosen me Jesus is saying, as his anointed one. This is only the first of the dangerous and liberating claims he is beginning to make, of setting people free, of bringing good news to the poor and proclaiming release to the captives. All these claims and promises that will end, and not very far off either, with his death on a cross. So it's all mixed up together, isn't it? Partly fixed in an exact place on the great timeline we carry inside our heads with the Big Bang at one end and this morning's headlines at the other. But also part of the great story of our faith that continues even as we speak. The horizontal, the timeline, intersected by the vertical, the eternal now, our relationship with God. It's all there together, being raised to honor and being humbled by circumstance. The glory of the heavens and the tangible, the very tangible reality of the earth. D.H. Lawrence, in the opening pages of one of my very favorite novels, The Rainbow, about the continuing generations of a family of farmers in the English Midlands, describes them like this. Heaven and earth was teeming around them, and how should this cease? They felt the rush of the sap in spring. They knew the wave which cannot halt, but every year throws forward the seed to begetting and falling back leaves the young born on the earth. Surely Lawrence describes something of what we feel at this time of the year. It's the richness and perennialness of what we know and trust is taking place in the darkness as the days grow shorter and the leaves fall and begin their hidden process of transformation into leaf mold and compost. 
Though, of course, I know that Mary was born and lived her whole life in a hot, dry climate of the Middle East. I always feel close to her at this time of the year. I have given birth, as many of you have. I remember in my body what it felt like in those final weeks and months of waiting, when your thoughts are all turned inwards and the entire world, the cosmos, is bounded by your own skin. For some people, men and women even of our own modern generation, it remains difficult to talk about or picture Mary in this state, in this way. Yet whatever we believe or whatever we think rationally about the birth of this Jesus of Nazareth, whom even the skeptics now acknowledge did really exist in history, sometime in the first century of the Common Era, during the reign of the Emperor Augustus. Whatever we may think about him or about that event, one thing is certain. Like every other human being who has ever lived, Jesus was inescapably born of a woman with all that that entails. This paradox of our faith, the unity of flesh and spirit, the divine growing inside a human body, was brought home to me very personally just last week. We were in a small group of clergy, Richard was there, using the Advent program from the diocese where you um, examine the ways, you divide your life into chapters and you try to examine the ways that God has been present in each one of those chapters. And one of our young clergy colleagues uh, talked about the experience of having been present at the birth of his two young boys. He said, I have real issues about the way we see Mary, the Mary and the Christmas crash all safe and sanitized, as if she had produced not a real baby lying in the manger, but some sort of porcelain doll. Birth is not like that at all, he said. It's messy like the rest of life. It's about as far from sanitized as you can get. I was struck by the passion with which he said this, almost anger, that in our sentimentality, our niceness, our desire to separate the spirit and the flesh and keep them separate, we would in some sense back away from this very moment on which for us the whole creation pivots a moment that is both heavenly with the star above and the shepherds on the hills and the angel chorus, and yet existing at the same time in the pain of Mary's labor and her joy at its outcome, surrounded there in the stable by the warm breath of the animals who share her space. But again, I get ahead of myself, as we're tempted to do when we look from the dark days where we wait towards the light ahead. For now, we are still in Advent, and Mary's secret still not known to anyone but Joseph. But of course, she must tell another woman. And so she goes to see her cousin Elizabeth, also surprisingly with child in her old age. And it's when she hears Elizabeth call her the most blessed of women that she, Mary, seems to explode into this song of praise and exaltation 
for a God who has not only blessed her with this child growing in her, but whose future actions she already sees and believes. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts, as the King James Version puts it. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree, filling the empty with good things and sending away empty those who have been before rich. If her psalm, because that's what her great song most resembles, were taken separately and out of context from the way we know it, it could easily be taken as a manifesto of political and economic revolution, as it has been and will be again. In the meantime, from our imperfect world, we contemplate the mystery, the strange and powerful light of God that is planted and growing within each one of us. We match our spirits to the growing darkness as we approach the winter solstice that the ancients used to fear, fearing that the light once dwindled would never return. It's not a frightening darkness for us, but a warm one as we wait, grounded in our human bodies, all the mess and sprawl of our lives, and at the same time raised from the dark earth by a force so strong that nothing can prevail against it. As the earth brings forth its shoots, the prophet Isaiah promises, and a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. That's what lies ahead of us. That's what we believe, what we know in our bones. So let us pray for the wisdom to be still, to pay attention, and to wait, so that like Mary, we may recognize and nurture the divinity growing within us, moving forward quietly, content to accept God's will, in the faith and trust that what the Holy One has begun in us in the darkness will most certainly be brought into the light. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley, dot org. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to be able to greet you in person very soon.